Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Royal Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, joined tonight by my co-host, Matt DeBear. Matt, what's going on? I am relaxing on the couch, watching Oklahoma-Houston score all the points. No, not as many points as I was anticipating. I was expecting this to be a little bit more silly. It was the over-under, like 78 or 79, like 80, I think. I thought. I thought it was, it was right around there, yeah. Yeah, but now it's... Uh, uh, there, there's a little little box up trying to prevent me from knowing what the holy hell Oklahoma has 588 yards of offense. Google, yeah, it's 35-17 with a uh, 130 left in the third quarter for all of you who want to benchmark against where we are. Uh, but yeah, we're not here to talk about Oklahoma against Houston. We're here to talk about our uh, beloved Nittany Lions starting the season, uh, just ragdolling Idaho. It was 79 to seven. Uh, based on, uh, it's kind of funny to say this score was not as close as it, uh, game was close, not, not as close as the score might indicate because Penn State allowed a late, uh, touchdown on a, uh, special teams error. Uh, we might, that, that was basically the one down point for Penn State on the entire evening, on the entire afternoon. Sean Clifford, well, pretty good under center. We're going to spend a whole lot of time on him. Uh, Penn State's running game was, especially potent in the Nittany Lion defense was as good as it uh, basically as good as we could have imagined. Uh, Matt, I kind of want to break down our takeaways into two things. Uh, We'll talk about Sean Clifford uh, and his introduction to the Penn State fan base in a, well, his his first introduction, his introduction to the fan base as the full-time starter in a second. But before we do that, with all the, um, caveats that this was against a very overmatched Idaho team. Uh, I want to know what are just some main takeaways, non Clifford division that you had about the Nittany Lions on Saturday? Well, I think I'm going to start with kind of just like a big picture thing, which seems weird in a game. Like you said, that was against a team that just athletically was on just a whole lower level than, than Penn state is. Um, But from a big picture standpoint, they just, they did exactly what, teams in Penn State's position do to teams like Idaho. Um, they, just, they executed really well for the most part. You know, there was some early hiccups that we'll get into with Sean Clifford, but I mean, you score 79 points. They had, I think, close to 600 yards of offense. Um, it was just a very... <laughs> what, 673. If I, if I may. Almost they, 700 yards of offense. They had almost 700 yards of offense. I believe I saw that it was the third uh, most total yards in program history. Yeah, it was just, it was, it wasn't perfect. I think it's, you know, you, you start to nitpick on, on certain things when you have a, a matchup like that where you have a team that's just that much athletically superior to the other. But the, you know, the receivers caught the ball. The offensive line opened holes. Um, you know, the, the quarterback played well. The defensive line did what a defensive line with Penn State's talent supposed to do. The defense as a whole was just really dominant. Really, for for sixty minutes, I think Idaho had like four yards rushing and less than one hundred fifty yards of offense. They had, I think it was five first downs. Um, yes, there there are things on both sides of the sides of the ball that that you'll want to clean up. Um, and as you get into tougher competition, might be exploited a little bit more. But really, just from top to bottom, at at just about every spot on the field, they executed at a really really high level with with the amount of consistency we really haven't seen in a long time. Um, I don't know. I'm but been racking my brain trying to think of an opener that was as as one sided as as dominant top to bottom as this one. 
in Penn State history, and I, I really am struggling to think of one um, where they just did what they were supposed to do. Um, you know, but when you're that much better than than the opposition, it's you know, for to some degree, you're competing against yourself to make sure you you don't make mistakes, to make sure that you're 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 not hurting yourself in any way. And they really didn't. You know, we'll talk about a couple little little blips here and there, but um, you know, no turnovers, no one got hurt. There was no huge blown assignments. I think there was just one drop pass, and that was Journey Brown on a little swing pass that he got got a little over anxious on um, trying to get it upfield. So really all together, um, just a really impressive, effective, well-played game by Penn State. Yeah, I, it's. I'm glad you brought up turnovers. Uh, it, it didn't really seem like there was a it seemed there were one or two moments that got a bit hairy. I mean, obviously there was uh, the issue on the punt late that went to their touchdown. Uh, Matt Kippenhammer also put another uh, punt return on the ground that Penn State was able to scoop up. Uh, first drive of the game, Sean Clifford. Uh, one of the things we'll talk about with Clifford is how he settled into the game, but certainly nervous a bit. He put a ball a ball on the ground on a uh, on an RPO. But really, I'm glad you mentioned it, Matt. They really didn't seem like they were ever really bothered. They just went out and kind of did what they had to do. They they played like they played how a top 15 team should play against a bad bad to mediocre FCS team uh, during their season opener. They they looked comfortable. They never really looked like. Um, I don't want to say never really looked like they were exerting much because, you know, a, a small Idaho football player could still kick my ass, but they they were able to go out and do what they had to do without too terribly much resistance. That's something that'll certainly change um, next week against Buffalo and could possibly change the week after uh, against Pitt. But the big thing that stood out for me uh, again, other than Clifford, I was really happy to see how um, seamlessly they they were able to get the ball into the hands of a number of different guys. In the running game, Devin Ford had six carries, Noah Kane had nine, uh, Journey Brown had five, Ricky Slade had five, and you know, shout out to Nick Yuri for his uh, his touchdown run that was. Not only awesome, but I think Saquon Barkley still is not totally over it. Uh, and then the receiving game. K.J. Hamler was involved. Justin Shorter was involved. They were able to get the backs involved a bit. Daniel George hauled in a few balls. Like It was what you want to see in that we were able to get a little bit of a taste of everybody. Uh, I would have been... I don't want to say worried, but I would it would have been very curious to me if... Justin Shorter was the only guy catching any passes, or they were really bell cowing uh, Ricky Slade during this game. But they wanted to get everyone involved. They wanted to try and use this first game to get everybody into into the flow of the season, into remembering what it's like, or learning uh, what it's like in the case of some of the young guys, what it's like to play college football at this level. And it ended up being really successful. I mean, seventy nine to seven. There's a you can't really find too much that you don't like out of that. And then, real quick, they got a whole bunch of dudes in on defense. They got a whole bunch of guys who were able to get in on defense and raise hell. Pence had seven sacks. Um, it's the first weekend of the year. Yitor Grossmatos leads college football with two and a half sacks. Hopefully he's able to keep up that pace and have a really special season. But 
John Reed was able to get into the backfield. Jason Owe, we saw him uh, raise a little bit of havoc when he was able to get on the field for a few extended stretches. Daniel Joseph got a sack. Shaka Tony got a sack. Robert Windsor got half a sack. It was just a really well-rounded performance by Penn State. And it, like we mentioned, Matt, when you're playing a team of this caliber, yeah, the 79 points are really impressive, but what's even more impressive was just how comfortable Penn State looked the entire time. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and kind of like I was alluding to, it's just the, the the level of execution from really, you know, after the first two drives through the end was just, especially with the starters, once they everyone kind of settled in a little bit, was just really, really impressive. Um, you know, when you're starting uh, so many new players in new places, in, including a quarterback, but you've got four new running backs, essentially, that were all getting time. You've got two new starters on the offensive line um, and three guys making up those those two new spots when you consider Mike Miranda and C.J. Thorpe splitting time at one of the guard spots. Um, and you've got, you know, the new receivers getting worked in more and more. Um, and then even factoring KJ Hamler, who was moved around quite a bit, um, slot outside, he got the, the touch in the run game. He had the kind of little shovel screen pass option kind of play that didn't work, but it's kind of one of those things you put on tape that all of a sudden now, you know, you wonder what else they can run off that look, um, down the road. Um, it was just, like I said, it's, it's a pretty impressive start when you consider in the last certainly five years that James Franklin's been there and even going back before that, you know, with Bill O'Brien, even Joe Paterno in, in his final few years, it's been a really, really long time since a team in the first game has executed to the level that Penn state did. And yes, the, the competition is, is part of that, but there was not a whole lot of self-inflicted wounds when you consider that that's really the way that, that Penn state could have hurt itself against Idaho was, was dropping passes, was missing blocks, was missing tackles. Once they settled into the game, it was just um, a real high level of execution. And that, that's how you end up with almost 700 yards and almost 80 points. And of course, like the big thing in a game like this, no injuries. Like it, it with, with the exception of Pat Fryermuth. With the exception of Pat Fryermuth, who uh, was targeted against, uh, but in his, you know, one of the apparent downsides of being baby Gronk is that you get officiated like Gronk, which means that you're not going to get norm what are normally supposed to be penalties called against you. Uh, neither here nor there. Um, I think now it's kind of the time to uh, move into Sean Clifford, Penn State's starting quarterback in his first extended action uh, as Penn State's number one. 14 for 23, 280 yards, two touchdowns through the air. Uh, on the ground, seven carries, 57 yards. Matt, it was not, like, it wasn't a perfect performance by any stretch of the imagination, but what Im- I think what impressed me the most is going to be what impressed you the most, and that is how he, he had happy feet, um, he was missing some throws, he wasn't quite getting reads right on RPOs early on, but then as he, once those early jitters got out of him, he was perfectly fine. He looked perfectly fine. Yeah, and I'm gonna we'll get into the Big Ten in a little bit, but I'm gonna almost kind of compare it to to Justin Fields in Columbus, who, all for all intents and purposes, got his first first real sense of of college action. You know, he played a little bit for Georgia last year, but 
Um, he's the starter in Columbus. He's he's the head, the starting quarterback for Ohio State. That's that's a big thing, obviously. Um, he had the big start. I think he like I can't I don't know what the numbers were, but they scored on four. They scored on their first four drives and were up twenty eight nothing. But he kind of found hit the hit the skids a little bit after that. I think there were five or six straight drives where FAU was able to stop Ohio State. Sean Clifford was almost kind of the reverse of that where they got gifted the, the really good field possession or position on their first two drives and drove down inside the five on the first one and um, actually made a really good read on an RPO um, and just couldn't beat the linebacker at the throw to hit. I think it would have been Hamler um, in the back of the end zone who was wide open. Um, the linebacker made a nice play and probably one of those plays where the quarterback can do do a little bit to avoid that guy being able to make the play. Um but then on the second drive, I think he was 0 for 2, and just that was the one where it really looked like he might have been forcing some stuff. But he settled in. Um, what really impressed me, um, I kind of jump around a little bit here, but what really impressed me was the way he kind of calmed himself and adjusted. And you know, you, you saw him missing reads on the RPO or even the read option where he's reading the end. You saw him missing that read early on. He very quickly corrected that and. and um, I think it was um, the first touchdown. Journey Brown was a kind of a design play where Rashid Walker blocks down on a linebacker, actually freeing the end to to come into the backfield. And Clifford has to make the read there, whether he's in a keep or handoff. And he played it perfectly. And Journey Brown went 25 yards or whatever it was for the first touchdown of the day. That was an adjustment that he made, you know, by the third series of the game to, to be able to to react to some mistakes he made earlier. And that's just a sign of, of, or one example of, of his learning experience throughout the game. You know, he started to settle in his passes, got a little bit more accurate. Like you said, the happy feet went a little, went away. He settled into the position and I don't know if he, what he was started at was four for seven or four for eight, but he ended 14 for 23. So he clearly got better as the game went on. And I think you really saw a lot of that, um, I don't want to say moxie because it's kind of become a running joke with with the Matt McGloin era, but he he showed that that resiliency. He showed that that confidence in himself. I think more than anything that he can play quarterback at Penn State at this level, and just really from, from all parts of the quarterback position, whether that's keeping the ball on the option, making the right throw with the ball, um, you know, the, the first touchdown pass to KJ Hamler where he kind of stepped up in the pocket a little bit to buy some time and, and made the throw while he's getting hit and brought down just a, when you consider this is his first real action of any consequence, um, you know, the bowl game last year, notwithstanding everything before that was really in, in mop up time. Um, when, you know, yeah, it was great to see him do what he did, but whether he was great or not was relatively inconsequential to, to the result of the game. This is the first time that he's been the guy and, the moment was really not too big for him after he settled in. And I think it was almost a microcosm of what we've talked about a lot. And I wrote about it today from these first five games where Penn state's going to have an opportunity to kind of ease into the season a little bit without a huge amount of pressure. There's going to be some challenges for sure. Um, you know, the pit game in a couple of weeks, the, the in-state rivalry aspect, the Friday night in Maryland, there's going to be some, some adversity, but I think his reaction to not starting out the game the way he wanted to and recovering from that to finish the way he did 
is is really impressive because I think there's obviously going to be more of that adversity as the year goes on. And this is just the first of what's hopefully a lot of examples he can draw on of, of how you react to that and respond to that. I, I tend to agree. And there's he, there was a quote after the game uh, that I went looking for while you were break, you were breaking down his game. Uh, just found it on Twitter from uh, Onward Sports. James Franklin said, I thought uh, he, he being Sean, I thought he settled down after those first few drives. He managed the game really well. Uh, as the game went on, he was very accurate. Uh, and then from uh, Derek Lavars, the first two drives, he missed some throws. His feet uh, were probably a little antsy. But after that, uh, he admitted to me he got comfortable. So what our eyes all told us about Sean Clifford, uh, that he he looked to be a bit... I don't want to say overwhelmed. He looked to be a bit antsy on those first couple of drives, whether it was, uh, you know, just wasn't quite getting his feet under him and he was putting throws in weird places, uh, wasn't quite making the right decisions on RPOs, those sorts of things. That was true. Like, Sean Clifford was not great those first couple of drives, but we, as uh, all you and myself and Nick all mentioned on last week's edition of the pod, the big thing that we wanted to see if Sean Clifford hit one of those walls was how he was going to respond to it. And it was not, it was certainly not his um, uh, toughest test that he will face during this first month or so of the season, but it was still a test. And he was able to get past it pretty easily. Uh, again, once he kind of got those early game jitters out of him. You know, 280 yards, two touchdowns on a half and one or two drives. Uh, you can't ask for too terribly much more than that. Uh, he eventually started getting more comfortable uh, with reading defensive linemen and whether or not to give the ball to his running back or whether or not he should keep it himself and then whether he should throw it from there. Uh, I thought he looked, he looked comfortable uh, improvising on the... Uh, you know, the time or two that popped up, uh, the touchdown throw to K.J. Hamler where K.J. got in behind the defense and I think someone might have fallen down. And he just, you know, happy feet's up in the pocket and flicks his wrist and drops in a dime right onto the numbers. Like, that's what you want to see out of him. And that's uh, exactly what we did see out of him, again, as the game started going along. Uh, there were a few other throws where... You know, it, whether they were to a Justin Shorter and to Daniel George, I think those were the two uh, main guys who stuck stick out in my head, where they weren't spectacular. He was just being a quarterback in the pocket, and he stood in there cool, calm, and collected, and he fired strikes. Like, that's all you really want. And when you're able to get surround him with the running game that it looks like Penn State is going to be able to surround Sean Clifford with, uh, Devin Ford looked like, uh, the home run threat that we all hope he is. Ricky Slade didn't, you know, he didn't have a super dynamic game. They didn't need him to. Uh, Journey Brown, he was able to get loose a time or two. Noah Kane looked like a potential uh, potential guy who can run between the tackles and rumble a bit and do some stuff. They need that out of him. When you're able to take the pressure off the quarterback that way and surround him with the receiving talent that we believe Penn State has surrounded Sean Clifford with. All you need at that point is for a quarterback to be able to make those throws. And based on what we saw week one out of him, 
he looks like a guy who is going to be able to make those throws. And that's that's really all you can ask for. He also there was one RPO, I can't remember exactly when it was, but I think a defensive lineman had uh, you know, it was the guy who he was meant to read, and he ends up breaking right into the backfield. Oh, it was the one where he I believe it was the one he ran for 25 yards. Gets right into the defensive backfield. Uh, sells out to make sure whomever the running back was wouldn't get it, and Clifford just read that perfectly, tucking it and running it. He doesn't. He hardly looks like the. Uh, you know, he's not the most fluid runner. I he's not Trace McSorley with his legs. I'm, we're watching Oklahoma right now, Matt. He's not Jalen Hurts with his legs, but he can beat you with him, and he was able to beat. Uh, he was able to beat Idaho with them a time or two. So with the caveat again. Idaho is not a team that uh, we expected to be able to uh, really throw a lot of difficult stuff at Sean Clifford. I think he held up pretty well. Uh, The issue with doing this exact podcast is we're 21 or so minutes into it right now, and we're uh, running out of things from this game to talk about, so... Matt, uh, are there any, there, there is one additional thing that I really want to talk about. Are there any additional things that you would like to talk about? I'll just, you kind of hit like a little, uh, grocery list here. One more thing on Clifford and you kind of touched on it. There is the, the, the running aspect that he brings to the game. Like you said, he's not Trace McSorley. He's not, I don't think he's even Tommy Stevens or certainly not a Jalen Hurts or, or Justin Fields in Columbus. Um, I'm going to compare him to a guy that we, a lot of Penn State fans probably wish I wouldn't, but Shea Patterson in Michigan where, yeah, he can run. Yeah, it's part of his game, but he'd much rather use his arm. I don't know if he's as, if he's as naturally athletic as, as Shea Patterson is, but he's that kind of, of runner. I think what they showed yesterday was that he is competent enough running the ball that you need to respect it. And the amount of of offense that that's going to open up down the road as they continue to show that is going to be so important. We saw it three years ago in Trace McSorley's first year that when the offense really took off was when then Joe Moorhead made the decision that they were going to involve Trace McSorley running the ball more. Um, It was really started probably for the first time really in the second half of the pit game that year and just expanded from there in route to a Big Ten championship. Now, I'm not guaranteeing that or saying that's going to happen this year, but just pointing out how important having a quarterback who is a threat to keep the ball on those plays and competent enough to, to beat you with his legs on those plays. Um, sorry, I'm just watching Houston just somehow through a fade that worked and that never happens. Yeah, it was, that was a pretty one. Uh, De'Aaron King really just dropped it right in there. I don't know how it went through the sooner defensive back, but anyway, that's not neither here nor there. Um, as for other things, though, I, I touched on it briefly. The, the, the wide receiver play, um, the pass catching play in general was really good. Um, there was the one drop by journey Brown that I mentioned. Um, one thing in particular that really stood out to me was how much they got the running backs involved in the passing game. I think there were six receptions total. They were targeted seven times. Um, I think my favorite play of those was the Ricky Slade catch and run that set up his rushing touchdown. Um, it really wasn't the kind of play. I'm not sure we've seen from this offense under Moorhead or Ricky Ronnie, where he, they kind of leaked him out of the backfield over the middle, not a screenplay, but just kind of a – it was designed to go to him, um, but they just kind of snuck him out of the backfield in front of the linebackers and got him the ball in space, and I think he had was 20 or 25 yards um, technically passing, but a lot of that was Ricky Slade using his legs. Um, 
But getting the, the running backs involved, I think, was something last year that we really were surprised we didn't see. I don't think Miles Sanders was was a liability catching the ball, but for one reason or another, they just didn't get him involved that way. Um, so that, that was encouraging. Um, like you said, there were, you know the only real injury concern out of this was Pat Fryermuth, but he seemed like he was okay on the sidelines, kind of joking around with his teammates. Um, it's an obvious head injury, so who really knows? But um, again, that's not going to be... That's that's one position that they're they're pretty capable at with with the depth there. So even if they elect to hold him out or he needs to be held out going forward, um, so I, I'm reading through my the column I wrote for the site today. So um, this might be a little little hit or miss on some of this stuff. Um, defense, you know, I don't know what you what you can say about a unit that holds your opposition to five first downs and four rushing yards. Um, again, the, the the competition is the caveat in all this, but. That's that's what really good defenses do to 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 offenses that are overmatched is they they dominate them. They had seven sacks, um, and it was a number of players. Just looking down the stats here, Lamont Wade, who I thought was really good um, in run support, he wasn't really tested that I can remember in the passing game, um, but he had four tackles, three of them on his own. Um, Treat Castro Fields, three tackles, um, all of them solo. Um, one of those in the backfield. Um, gross models. What can you say? He was all over the place. Um, Jesse Lukita, he's going to be kicking himself for that, that drop pick six early on. Um, uh, but he was over on the ball. Adisa Isaac, um, what had, had a half a sack. Um, just Jan Johnson, I thought was, was solid. Shaka Tony did what Shaka Tony did. Um, going down here to the bottom, uh, Keaton Ellis got, got in the, got in the game. He had one pass defended. Um, just a lot of guys played and, they didn't look overwhelmed. Yes, they got the one touchdown late, which can be a concern. Um, when you, but I don't even remember the combination of guys in there. And like you said earlier, Bill, it was off of a, a short field off the muff punt. So, um, I, I know what you want to talk uh, about. So a I'm short, leave, so a I'm short leave field it to off. That. Of, it's important to, without, uh, you know, hating on Matt Kippenhammer too much. Short field on a muff punt by a guy who he's not going to be Penn State's number one punt returner. Who knows if you know they they go in a different direction now? But the circumstances under which Mac Hippenhammer uh, would be returning a punt in a situation where they would need him uh, to give them a spark and something like that could have been calamitous. It's contingent on KJ Hamler not being able to do it for whatever reason. So I think that it is important to just toss that one out there. Oh, for sure, and I th- and I think it's even fair to wonder whether Mac Hippenhammer's the number two. I think he's he's on the depth chart for sure at punt returner, but is John Reed or or one of the other guys potentially the number two? And they were just trying to get get more guys in the game. Um, I'm only going to touch on special teams briefly because I know that's that's the one thing that you're going to mention. Correct. But I thought just in general they looked looked competent. You know, when you're only being kicked off to twice in the game, um, you know it's it, it is what it is. Um, but I thought the, the field goal kicking just, you know, try, trying to overly dissect things. I thought Jake Penninger looked really solid. It looked like his leg was stronger. The ball was coming off his foot with a little bit higher trajectory, which is, which is important. So, um, all in all, you know, all three phases of the game, you know, we can nitpick, you know, James Franklin mentioned third downs as something. And that's certainly something as you, you get further into the season against better teams. If, if you're not converting on third down, it's going to be more, more calamitous as, to, to pick your word. Um, but, but it is nitpicking when you, when you execute as well as Penn state did on first, second, and even fourth down, 
third down conversions aren't aren't as important. Um, but it's certainly as a coach is the kind of thing you look for when you do win by 72 points, you're trying to find things that you can coach up. Um, and that's one of a few negatives that, that I'm sure the staff will be really harping on leading to the Buffalo game next week. Yeah. I missed the third downs. They were one for eight. That's uh, that, and I think it was, I counted today. I think it was either one for five or one for six with the stars in the game. So it wasn't even like mm-hmm. it was a, a reserve sort of thing. Yeah, um, I, they did go for it on third, da- uh, fourth down three times. They converted two of those, and I do wonder, you know, I'll have to go back and watch the game and pay attention to this, but I do wonder if uh, part of the reason they were one for eight was, uh, you know, on those three times where they decided to go for it on uh, third down, it was, let's, you know, our third down play call, we'd like to get all of them, but if we don't, that's fine fine because we know we're going for it. Whatever. Neither here nor there. Uh, yeah, I, I was... Special teams... I don't need uh, to say how less than great they were for Penn State uh, at times last year. I mean, Blake Gillikin punted one... He punted twice, actually, if I remember correctly. One time he got a punt off, the other time it was blocked, uh, if memory serves. Uh but the big thing for me was I was really, really impressed. One with Jake Pinniger, uh, 10 for 10 on uh, PATs. I, did he miss any last year? I, I know field goal. Yeah, he missed two PATs last year. I mean, he was still he still went 53 for 55, so a pretty good year on those. But the fact that he went 10 for 10, that's encouraging. The fact that he went 2 for 2 on field goals, even if neither of them were particularly booming kicks, uh, is really nice. I was glad there was that factoid that like three quarters of his missed field goals came from one hash mark uh, last year or something just completely ludicrous like that. So I am glad that he was able, uh, I, I believe he made one from each hash mark. So good on Jake Pinniger for that. And the big thing for me uh, that I want to talk about was Jordan Stout. Um, he was awesome. Uh, I believe it was uh, our pal Sean Fitz over at Lions twenty four seventy tweeted this, but it, the fact that they that Virginia Tech couldn't find a scholarship for a guy who uh, had a million kickoffs and every single one of them either went was a touchback because they either went out of the end zone or they went super deep into into the end zone and they called for a fair catch or because yeah again they just called a fair catch and the coverage team got down there is crazy to me and then we get to the fact that that 53 yard field goal from one of the hashes out of him was gorgeous uh i you know i'm not going to sit here and cape for him to take Jake Pinnegar's job because you know that's uh, there is no overreaction that I think would be more funny than uh, pining for a kicker controversy after a 79-7 to win in which one of the kickers went 2-for-2 two two on field goals and 10-for-10 10 10 for point afters. Uh, but it's really nice knowing that in the event that you know Jake Pinniger kind of hits the wall that he hit last year, I, I don't think he will. I think that... Uh, you know, Joe Warg's a good special teams coach, and he's probably worked on this stuff with him. But in the event that Pinnegar goes uh, 16 for 24 again this year, 
especially because he was, wasn't particularly great on field goals from 40 yards and out. Having that second option in uh, the back pocket is uh, it's quite nice. Is there anything that you would like to add on uh, Mr. Stout? Um, a huge thanks to a friend of the blog, Ankit, for bestowing the, the best title I can think of for Jordan Stout, Touchback Jesus. Yes, he is, uh, he, he is absolutely Touchback Jesus, so shout out to him. And, uh, you know, I'll say it. Shout out to the University of Notre Dame because they, they had a good nickname that we were – well, not a good nickname. They had a nickname for a thing, and we were able to take it and make it a lot better. So uh, glory to Touchback Jesus in the highest and peace uh, in heaven and earth. Let's talk about the Big Ten – uh, just to wrap this one up, it wasn't a particularly uh, gigantic weekend in conference play. Most schools understand that scheduling a good team during the first week of the year uh, probably isn't your best idea, but there were still a few schools that got got. Uh, first game was Minnesota, South Dakota State. I don't. I, I only watched a second of this one uh, where uh, I believe I turned it on and Minnesota took the lead, so I turned on something else but um yeah they're they're considered a dark horse to win the big 10 west and they couldn't put away a, an admittedly pretty good south dakota state team so i have nothing to add on this what about you matt uh, i watched a little bit of it because there was like 19 games on on thursday night and i was flipping between all of them um, because it's college football and we should overdose on it as much as possible um I'm always hesitant to overreact too much to the opening week, but for a team like Minnesota that comes into the season with all this hype, you know, dark horse in the West, um, you know, from a Penn State perspective, you know, looking at maybe being 8-0 or 7-1 when the Lions head there in November, you'd like to see them do more against South Dakota State than needing a fourth-quarter touchdown and two-point conversion to win by seven, but um, it'll, I'll be curious to see where they go from here. Um for a team that has a lot of expectations, that was that was pretty underwhelming. We talked about how for a team like Penn State that has some some pretty high expectations, despite some some big questions, um, Minnesota's in a similar boat to some degree, and they they did the exact opposite of what you want to do. Yeah, I mean, it, it again, it wasn't a game that I paid too much attention to, but hey. Able to overcome some weak win uh, adversity, so good for them. Uh, moving on to the Friday slate. Uh, you want to talk about overreactions. Uh, Michigan State's offense looked like booty against Tulsa, uh, but they were still able to come out on top 28-7. to uh, Spartan defense is real good. Uh, they uh, held Tulsa to 80 yards of total offense and a, 153 passing yards. So if you're good, better with uh, math than I am, you will know that is negative 73 rushing yards. On the evening, uh, the Michigan State offense didn't look very good. Um, Mark D'Antonio, of course, decided that instead of overhauling his offensive staff, he was just going to give everybody a different title, like just pulling them out of the hat or something. So not a surprise there that that was a, that was a bit of a weird one. But Matt, you are uh, closer to Michigan State than I am. So is there anything from that game that stuck out to you? Um. Well, you hit on the major one with it turns out that keeping your entire offensive staff together, but just giving them different titles doesn't overhaul the offense. Um, it was a lot of what we saw last year with a supposedly, you know, for, to some degree where they were limited by injuries a year ago. 
Um, Brian Lewerke looked okay. Um, he only averaged just over five yards per attempt, though. Um, did some stuff with his legs. He had, I think, 30 or 40 yards rushing. Um, my big takeaway is uh, from the, on the offensive side is that Michigan State's offensive line is a work in progress, to put it kindly. And without Felton Davis, they just don't have an obvious playmaker um, on the offensive side of the ball. On, on defense, <laughs> they have a lot of them. Um, negative 73 yards rushing. I don't know how many sacks they ended up crediting Michigan State with, but it had to be five or six, uh, I think. It's six per ESPN. Okay. Um, the one thing I'll be curious to see going forward with them is Tulsa had a lot of self-inflicted stupidity on, on offense for themselves, you know, with bad snaps and unforced errors and, and things along those lines. Um, full credit to Michigan State for, for taking advantage of those and, and being prepared for, as a defense to, to capitalize on those. But whew, with, with their schedule and, you know, the, the type of talent they're going to face going forward, um, if, if I looked like they looked on, on defense or on offense, just over 300 yards total offense, um, less than three yards per rushing attempt, I would be, I'd be a little nervous as I was a Michigan state fan going into the, the rest of the schedule and into the big 10 here in a couple of weeks. Yeah. I don't know how uh, Western is supposed to be uh, Western Michigan is supposed to be this year, but uh, taking on Arizona state ward knows what can happen there. Then their their big 10 slate. It ends with Rutgers and Maryland and they play Illinois in there, but uh, at Northwestern versus Indiana at Ohio state at Wisconsin in consecutive weeks, then a bye week, uh, hosting Penn State, Illinois, and then traveling to Michigan. They're, uh, they might want to figure some things out on offense before that happens because uh, that has a potential to look real weird. Um, next up, Wisconsin, South Florida. Uh, walk in the park for Wisconsin. Uh, I thought, you know, they won 49 to nothing. Jack Cohn looked fine. Jonathan Taylor looked like Jonathan Taylor. Uh, their defense looked pretty good. Um, I thought they were helped a lot by the fact that uh, South Florida just doesn't have, didn't look like it had a lot of receiver and their running game wasn't really able to get off the ground, but a uh, nice impressive win out of, uh, out of the, out of uh, the Badgers heading down to South Florida to, you know, start the year with a win on the road. Yeah. And I, I watched with the, the weather situation as it was on Friday night, I was actually able to watch a fair amount of this one too. Plus having multiple TVs is always a, a huge plus, but um, I, this was one I was actually a little curious about just because, um, the, the quarterback uncertainty for Wisconsin, you know, Jack Cohn or the, the freshman whose name I'm blanking on at the moment, um, you know, their battle throughout camp, um, South Florida, I think probably, and I'm guilty of this as well, was probably a little overrated in the minds of quite a few people based on last year. They, they won a lot of really close games last year, especially early and really struggled down the stretch. So I'm not sure they were as as well equipped going into this year as as it might have appeared but um for a team like wisconsin that struggled mightily last year especially against the better teams in their schedule i thought they looked really good jonathan taylor looked really impressive and jack Cohn did what what wisconsin quarterbacks are supposed to do and not lose the game and just be able to to make open throws and he was was really effective with that and obviously, anytime you shut out shut out a team, that the defense was was very impressive as well. So, big win for Wisconsin, I thought, um, especially given all the the questions coming out of last year and the kind of letdown season for them. 
Uh, speaking of impressive performances, Rutgers fell down 21 to seven to uh, UMass before storming back, winning 48 to 21. Credit where it's due. Uh, Rutgers was able to pick up a win. Uh, looks like they might have a pretty good running back in Isaiah Pacheco. Uh, Bo Melton and Raheem Blackshear look like potentially good receiving options. So I didn't watch a second of this game. Uh, Rutgers, great job. I cannot wait to see what you do next week when, uh, oh, God almighty, they're going to Kinnick. Uh, yeah, I, I got nothing else, Matt. You? I, I watched about four minutes of this game, and... Um, that that's a win. So good, so for, good for records. They they won a football game. Yes. Uh, uh, on the other side of the winning a football game coin is the final game for Friday. Nevada Purdue. Uh, I went to bed. Uh, I wasn't watching this game at all. I just saw that Purdue was up uh, thirty one to seventeen, and I said, hey, you know what? I'll I'll, I'll call it a night. Uh, and then I woke up, and then one of my friends who went to Purdue was really unhappy. Uh, looked like uh. Nevada was just able to catch fire in the fourth quarter and route to a 34-31 to win. Elijah Sindelar put up some nice numbers through the air, and Rondale Moore was Rondale Moore. But, Matt, did you watch any of this, and can you tell me exactly what the hell happened? I I fell asleep, but I, I woke up, not to a Purdue fan, but to our, our mutual friend Kevin Rudy, texting me gibberish at 1-something in the morning, Um reacting to Nevada winning he he had Nevada I think plus 10 in this one um so so he was a happy guy but uh yeah Purdue kind of imploded down the stretch in this one um it was 31 31 Purdue had the ball with I think less than a minute left and and I think there was an interception that set up a game winning like 56 yard field goal or something like that uh yeah it was it was kind of an implosion on Purdue's part this one was kind of in the bag late and they just lost, lost the plot there in the last 10 or 15 minutes. Next up, uh, it's time we get to the Saturday slate. Uh, I think we should save Ohio state and Michigan for last. So we'll move on. Uh, Iowa, Miami. I didn't watch any of this. Did you? It was on a TV. I, I did not watch it. Um, it, it just looking at the little bit I did see and, reading some of the recaps, it looks like a very Iowa kind of performance. Um, I don't think the numbers were terribly impressive overall, but um, 38-14, grinding the game out, and you know, just kind of exerting your will from a physical standpoint, all, all hallmarks of the Kurt Ferentz Iowa Hawkeye football program. Yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, <laughs> Nebraska- that sounded like I knew what I was talking about. I watched about four minutes of that game. Yeah, I didn't watch any of uh, Nebraska-South Alabama either, but do know humble listener. I was rooting really hard for South Alabama, but wasn't meant to be. I, I actually watched this one a little bit. Um, this was way closer than 35-21. Um, South Alabama was like, were they ahead in the third quarter? Like, what was going on there? Um, I, I, well, let me let me pull up some, some stuff here and, and I can give you a really quick idea. They had a, um, they got to within 28-21. Um, so they never actually led, but they, they hung around a lot and they had the ball with chances to, to tie the game. It just never really happened. Um, for a team kind of along the same lines as Minnesota that everyone's kind of talked about, I don't think Nebraska is a dark horse. I think a lot of people like them as <laughs> to win the West, 
But for a team that had the expectations that they do, they looked very um, 2018 Nebraska in a lot of ways. They really struggled to run the ball. Um, offensively, they, they weren't, just weren't very good. The defense forced a lot of turnovers, um, which you know is either a good thing or a bad thing, but turnovers as a whole aren't necessarily a sustainable option defensively. So um, not the, the kind of performance that I think those of you who – have Nebraska as your Big Ten West champion or, or challenging for that spot really expected um, against a team like South Alabama. Uh, Northwestern scheduled Stanford again for some reason, and shocker, Stanford won 17-7. Um, I Everything I know about this game is through two things. One, uh, the box score in which I see the Nebraska – uh, not Nebraska, Northwestern gained 210 yards of total offense. Uh, and two, my friend Ben, who is a – uh, Northwestern graduate. He was very unhappy. Um, this this so game, so this were gamblers. Yeah, what was that? Um, so, so were those of you who had Stanford. Oh, uh, wasn't there like Northwestern a, plus six and a half? I was going to say, wasn't there like just a comical backdoor cover in this? Oh, it, it was it was the most comical backdoor cover since Ohio State did the same against Northwestern. Ironically enough, uh, two or three years ago in Evanston, You've got to be um, kidding. Stanford had the game one. It was ten seven. Um, with less than a minute left, Northwestern had the ball with 90 some yards to go and, um, not really the, the kind of offense offensive explosiveness that offensive explosiveness. There we go. That, that you're going to want to pull out a game like that. Um, Hunter Johnson, the Clemson transfer was really underwhelming. Um, as was most of the Northwestern offense, but yeah, uh, Hunter Johnson rolling out to his left. He's a right-handed passer totally oblivious to the very large human trying to tackle him, um, gets hit, fumbles into the end zone, Stanford recovers, and those of you with Stanford minus six and a half are really happy. Uh, I'll tie two together. Uh, Maryland, 79 nothing over Howard. Uh, Howard, even by the standard of an FCS team, isn't particularly great, but uh, you know, Justin, uh, Josh Jackson probably got his uh, apologies, got his first uh, opportunity to show what he could do in a Maryland jersey. Showed out a bit. Uh, Illinois blew out. Ac- they, Ac- Illinois was the uh, legally required Big Ten team that Akron started its season with. They were able to win 42-3. to uh, Much ado about nothing there in my MS estimation, Matt. Anything that you would potentially like to add? Um, Brandon Peters, the Michigan transfer, was was competent at quarterback for Illinois. Hey, go and, and I learned that from, from reading the top performers on ESPN. <laughs> uh, and then final game, we're going to just kind of gloss over Indiana ball state. Didn't watch a second of this one. Uh, Indiana won 34, 24, uh, talented quarterback, uh, Michael Penix jr. Uh, keep an eye out on him. If memory serves, he tore his ACL or something like that against Penn state last year. He's a ball. He he can really ball. Uh, I'm interested to see what he's able to do for Indiana this year, but uh, he's going to have to get a lot. Be- he's going to have to take a lot of steps forward before they play Ohio State on a nine fourteen. In the event that Indiana wants to pull a gigantic upset, uh, anything from this one, Matt? Um, everything I know about this one I read from Crimson, Crimson Quarry, our friends over there, and I am I am all aboard the nine win Indiana team. So oh. so go Hoosiers. Uh, I, I suppose I am too, as long as we're not one of the nine. Uh, let's head to Columbus, forty-five to twenty-one. The Buckeyes beat Florida Atlantic. 
Uh, Ohio State, 28 first quarter points, and then kind of went into cruise control. Uh, you know, they weren't really asking Justin Fields to do too terribly much, but he was still able to go for five total touchdowns, uh, 234 yards through the air, 61 on the ground. J.K. Dobbins did some J.K. Dobbins stuff. But, Matt, I think people would – I think a lot of people probably saw Ohio State go up 28 nothing. Uh, and then I imagined they turned the TV off or they turned on another game or whatever. And then they saw that ended 45-21 and went, huh, that's weird. So what happened? Um, I kind of touched on it when we were talking about Sean Clifford a while back. But um, Florida Atlantic elected to not cover receivers and not tackle Justin Fields for the first uh, eight minutes and ten seconds of this game. Uh, and that's when when Chris Olave hauled in a 29-yard pass from from Justin Fields with not a single owl defender within the same zip code of him. Um, Justin Fields had the 51-yard touchdown run that actually was their first score. Um, I think he only had maybe 10 yards rushing total the rest of the game on 10 more carries or so, something like that. I have to look at the, the specific stats. But they looked really, really good for in the first eight minutes, and Florida Atlantic looked like they were a little overwhelmed. Um, just got free runners everywhere. Um, the Justin Fields touchdown was on a, a, an RPO sort of play where the entire Florida Atlantic defense followed JK Dobbins as one is known to do, um, leaving the entire left side of the field open for Justin Fields to run in. Um, but it, it's, is probably a combination of a couple things where you go up 28, nothing early psychologically, you're kind of, kind of hold, pull back a little bit because of who you're playing, um, and I'm guessing that probably also gave Ryan Day um, a little bit of freedom to try out a couple different things offensively and kind of just mix and match as as coaches are known to do, um, especially in these early season games without a true preseason. Um, but I I don't know a whole lot about you know Ohio State's defense. I know they let up gave up the 21 points. Over the final, um, really, all but three of those came in in the second half. So I'm sure there was a lot of you know mixing and matching, you know, reserves getting time there. Um, but Justin Fields played a fair amount of the game. Looked pretty good throwing the ball. Um, certainly cooled off a little bit from the really hot start, where like three of his first four passes went for touchdowns. Um, but this it, is it, kind of a hard one to take a whole lot from because they got out to such a big lead early that like I said, it gives you a chance to kind of screw around with with your your personnel packages, with your play calls. Um so I'm I'm gonna be curious going forward. They have a not a huge tough game this weekend, but Luke Fickle does bring Cincinnati to Columbus. Cincinnati's not not a great team, but they're not a pushover by any means. You're going to have a lot of kids on the Bearcat roster that were recruited by Ohio State, or, or in some cases not recruited by Ohio State. They're going to have a bit of a trip on their shoulder. Um, former Buckeye player and assistant and Luke Fickle bringing his team in there oh, as the head oh, coach. He, friend, he is much more than a former uh, Buckeye player and assistant. <laughs> uh, former interim head coach. Former, former guy who uh, wanted, Columbus the job, native. wanted the job, but Urban Meyer decided he wanted to go to Columbus, so he got kicked to the curb. Well, he, he was a little underwhelming in his in his 
interim season in as his, well. But in his one year is the guy after the guy. So, like, in fairness to him, it's not like he got much of a chance. But yeah, and an interim coach taking over in May or June, whenever Jim Trestle was fired. Um, but a, a guy that that certainly knows the Ohio State program from all angles. He's a, grew up in Columbus, um, went to. Oh, I can't remember what which one of the Columbus high schools he went to, but he he's a, a Columbus Central Ohio guy through and through. So, um, you know, he's going to have his team ready. So I'm I'm really interested to see against a step up in competition what what Ryan Day and and his his Buckeyes have in store um, this coming weekend. Yeah, who did uh, damn who was it that Cincinnati played this past week? Because they played someone that uh, they uh, UCLA. UCLA. Yeah, they look they look pretty solid in that one. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and lie to anyone and I say that they're going to win, but like they were, they're going to give Ohio state a bit of a run for their money. And if Ohio state takes their foot off the gas to the extent that they took their foot off the gas, uh, against FAU, you know, since he can give them some trouble, like yeah, is, they, they held, held UCLA to just over 200 yards of offense. They had over 400 yards themselves, pretty balanced attack against, against the Bruins. So it's, it's one of those where they're probably not going to pull the upset, but they're, they're not your typical preseason non-conference cupcake either. Yeah, there's they're going to bring a little bit they're, more they're than yeah. They're pit. It, it, it's that that's that's a good comp. They're they're going to do the pit thing where they're not they're obviously not as good, but they're going to have that bit of a chip on their shoulder that they wouldn't uh, that they probably wouldn't have against most other teams. So that will be that will be a fun one. It would have been a lot more fun if Ohio State weren't cowards and they were willing to go down to Nippert, but. Oh, well. Uh, last game uh, we're going to talk about uh, Michigan against Middle Tennessee. Um, Michigan came out on top 40 to 21, Matt, but I, I, I'm not trying to be a take guy. I was not particularly impressed with what we saw out of the Wolverines on uh, Saturday evening. I, it was a weird game. Um you know, Middle Tennessee gets off to the seven nothing lead early after the the Shea Patterson fumble, I think, on Michigan's first play from scrimmage, if I'm if I'm correct. Um, and they they battled back and they were up twenty four fourteen at halftime and they were never really in danger of losing the game, but it was just yeah they and and I'm I'm especially cynical living twenty minutes from Ann Arbor with regard to to Michigan and and the local media coverage, but yeah, the offense was was new and dynamic, and they they ran a lot of stuff out of the shotgun, and they didn't have fifteen tight ends on the field at the same time and four fullbacks, and they weren't going three yards up the middle every play, but it seemed like a lot of let's throw some stuff at the wall and see what sticks and what works. And I'm sure some of that is probably because of who they were playing and taking the opportunity against a team that, that you know you can beat and, and to do some different things with. But um, other than, than Zach Charbonnet, the, the true freshman running back, who I thought was really good. He looked great. He looked um, really good. He had finished with eight, eight carries for 90 yards at a long of 41. Didn't score, but he looked looked more competent than any of the other guys they rolled out back there in the backfield. Um, they did some weird Tommy Stevens sorts of things with Dylan McCaffrey and even Shea Patterson. <laughs> um, they, they ran a screen pass to their backup quarterback, which seems like a really bad idea when you don't really have anyone behind him, um, that you, you trust a whole lot. 
Um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, I don't know. It was just it was a weird game. You know, Asher O'Hara, the, the Middle Tennessee quarterback, was awesome, and I wish he played for a bigger program um, or even just a bigger group he, of five program he had, because he was fun to watch. I believe Millen said he had like a tiny bit of trace in him, and I was like, yeah, and like, yeah, you could absolutely. See. Oh he, yeah, he was. He's just a gamer. I love that kid. The, the touchdown that they scored early on to, to go up seven nothing right after the the uh, Shea Patterson fumble was was very trace like just not overly athletic but just will to find the end zone kind of play um against an athletic defense but but even the Michigan defense just kind of looked very I don't know uninterested I don't know again this is one of those don't overreact to a first game sorts of things but for a team that has really really high expectations um and is wanting to really, really promise us that Josh Gaddis gets to run the offense and they're going to do what he wants to do. It's almost like they were really focused on making sure that we knew this was Josh Gaddis's offense. They were going to do a lot of really different things than you're used to seeing from, from Michigan football, especially under Jim Harbaugh. Um, I, I got a text from my cousin during the game, who's a huge Michigan fan, um, shortly after the Shea Patterson fumble and, and Asher O'Hara touchdown early on, that said most of this fan base doesn't realize how close they are to going 7-5. and five. Now, Christopher, if you're listening to this, Michigan is not going 7-5 and five as much as I kind of want that to happen. But to your to, to his general point, this, this is a team that I don't know if that – what are they ranked, 7th or 8th in the country? Just – Looked very not seventh or eighth in the country. I know Michigan or Penn State was playing a better team, or a, or Michigan was playing a better team than Penn State's. What I'm trying to say, and they just looked not nearly as effective as Penn State did. They didn't execute at a very high level. The offensive line really felt like a work in progress. Um, they were missing John Runyon, um, one of their starting offensive linemen who has a ton of experience. They were also missing uh, Donovan Peoples Jones at receiver. Um, neither of those sound like they're terribly significant injuries, but yes. Uh, also just uh, to clarify, not that John Runyon, his kid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But his kid also has lots of experience and is also a large human being. Shocking. Um, I don't know. I, I'll be curious to see them in their next couple of games. They have army coming in this weekend, which everyone's really excited about as a possible upset. I don't see that at all. Um, uh, but in, in, in two weeks from this Saturday, they go to, to Madison to face what seems like a pretty good Wisconsin team who did, did what pretty good teams are supposed to do in week one. Um, I'm really fascinated by what they're going to do over the next month or so. Um, they've got a trip to Wisconsin. They host Iowa um, in those next three games. They've got or four games. They've got Army and Rutgers in there too. So um, fascinating team to watch going forward. It, the, the thing that really stuck out to me was how I wanted to see. I, okay, wanted is definitely not the right word here. I thought we would see Michigan try to be a bit more dynamic. I thought they'd try. And maybe with People Jones out, they decided, and with this being Middle Tennessee, and with, like you said, an early season trip uh, to Madison occurring, maybe they just didn't want to show too much of their hand. Um, but I, I thought we were going... I was expecting them... You know how when Penn State plays... Uh, a team that is admittedly not on their level during the first couple of weeks of the season, they use that as an opportunity to run up the score. There was last, uh, you know, there was Saturday's game going back to last season. There was the game against 
game against Pitt, game against Kent State, game against Illinois, a uh, year before that when uh, they trounced Akron and they trounced Georgia State. I was kind of expecting to see a little bit more of that out of Michigan. Um, I, I believe in, I, I picked them to win the Big Ten, so uh, you know I have the small whatever little amount of pride I have left riding on this. But I w- thought we were going to see Michigan play a little bit more loose under the lights against Middle Tennessee State in their building, and they just didn't quite look like that. And that's what I'm. That, that's what's going to be interesting these next couple of weeks because Army. We know the Army playbook, front, back, side to side, everything. If they, if Michigan gave up 300 yards of total offense, Middle Tennessee State, admittedly they were pretty good against the run, 67 yards. Army's still going to keep the ball. Army's still going to make, try and make them, uh, make them have to show that even though they lost some dudes on defense, they're still going to be able to be that indomitable unit that we all kind of expect out of them. And from there, there that's two weeks of stuff that they have to work on before they have to figure out how they're going to go into Camp Randall and pick up a win against a good Wisconsin team. So I want to see what Michigan is able to turn into over this next week or two because, you know, I mean, they're not going 7-5, and five, but you can see how things can go off the rails pretty quickly in the event that uh, Jim Harbaugh decides Josh Gaddis isn't the guy after however many weeks. Again, I think Michigan wins the Big Ten, so I think they'll be fine, but uh, we'll, we'll put a little bit of a pin in that one and uh, go with it. Did you just uh, did you just see the bad beat uh, that occurred in Norman? Uh, I well, Oh, they did? <laughs> well, for the over? Yeah, it was, uh, I believe it closed at 79 and a half, uh, and with a minute and... 20 seconds left or something like that. Uh, Oklahoma's backups ran one in on Houston to win 49 to 31. So we will see that on Scott Van Pelt this week. And we will, if he has time after this, the Stanford Northwestern one, which is, yeah, he's, he's going to, he was all over that one on Twitter on Saturday. He's probably going to have uncle Brett come back for that one. Let's, let's face it. But (laughs) yeah, I I think that that's all for us. I, we were somehow able to stretch this into an hour and two minutes. So God bless us. Uh, As always, Thank you very much for listening to the pod. We appreciate your continued support of our site. Make sure you keep reading. Make sure you follow us on all of our social media channels. You subscribe to all the various channels uh, that we have for this podcast. Uh, And if you're in the mood for some shirts, be sure to keep an eye out. Uh, We did a little bit of a flash sale after Penn State uh, beat up on Idaho. Wouldn't be surprised if we see another one or two of those throughout the season. So make sure you keep an eye on that and keep an eye on all things uh, we got going on a Roar Lions Roar. Uh, for my co-host, Matt DeBear, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Thanks for listening to this edition, and take care, everyone.